All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have natural hypertrophy. How are you doing, man? Good. How are you today? I'm good. So, you know, a lot of people have recommended that I get you on the podcast. And sometimes it's just, you know, either not being able to find somebody or have access. And sometimes it's just, you know, things get busy. I know you've been on the YouTube scene for a while. You got pretty good following. And I noticed something with guys like you or Jeffrey Verdi Schofield or um, like Alpha Destiny it's like a very loyal following, you know, like consistently people would be in my comment section, get this person on the podcast. And like, you know, it's a lot of the same people. So uh, I guess for people who are not familiar with you, maybe you can give a little bit of background, how long you've been lifting how long you've been in YouTube space, all of that. All right. So I've been lifting for close to 13 years now. It's been a long journey. I started when I was 15. And just like with many people without YouTube fitness back when it didn't exist, I did my own thing for a very long time. And so I built a lot of experience before I was allowed to actually tap into other people's. And it's the reason why I also wanted to start a channel is because when I saw how much I progressed off of YouTube fitness and the information that others gave me for free, I knew I had to give back somehow. So that's when I started the channel, which was roughly two years ago. But I've been on YouTube fitness since 2009. I've always been there. So it was for me an interesting thing to start to join a movement that I've always looked at from afar and now being able to actually be part of it and have an influence on it. That's awesome. Yeah. So kind of similar story with me. I, I started lifting around 13, 14 years old. I've been watching YouTube fitness since probably, yeah, also probably 2009 or so. Um, and my channel is now three years old, pretty much mostly just podcasts. I do some solo videos, but it's mostly the podcast stuff. But yeah, it is interesting, like seeing guys, like I don't know if you know, 3D Muscle Journey and other guys that I had watched for years that now, you know, I'm, I'm on like a very conversational basis with. And it's kind of interesting now being in that world. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm sure that a lot of people watching this right now feel the same way where they are not sure yet. They have a good level. They want to share things with people, but they think that it's this unbreakable wall. And at the end of the day, they need to understand that it's not. Like Geoff, you, me, we all decided to start making videos one day and there we are. There's space for everyone to share their beliefs and knowledge. Yeah. Did you have any connections? Like I know for me, one of the reasons of the podcast, not that, you know, my podcast is huge, but um, usually, you know, episodes get one, 2000 views, like a number that I'm happy with, like some people like seeing it, you know, the community is seeing it. And part of that was because I had some connections early on. So when you started, did you have any connections to people that you knew? Or was it just you just started making videos? And then the algorithm kind of picked it up? I started just right off the bat by myself. But I did have a strategy and a game plan when I started because I knew that YouTube fitness especially is ruthless, meaning that mm -hmm. there's no space for you. The algorithm has no time for your small channel. It's never going to recommend it. So what I did is, and maybe a lot of people in the comments are going to uh, remember that, I used to post comments everywhere, meaning that mm -hmm. I was subscribed to like 300 channels. And every time someone would post a video, I would post a comment, hundreds of comments every single day. And that's how I actually built the channel because... Out of each 100 people that looked at my comment and liked it, one would click on the name, being intrigued, look at one video and maybe subscribed. And that's how I actually got started. None of my videos ever got popular. It's just that I built a base community just with witty comments. There's a guy who I think his name is Back Guy. And I've seen him all over the place. And that's kind of how it was with him. He had these top comments all the time. And I think he's got a couple hundred thousand followers now or subscribers now i think um but some of his videos have done very well and they're just kind of these like humorous videos and, and whatnot but yeah I've, I've seen that and i for a while i would have notifications on when i first got started and so i could be like a top comment um i've kind of backed off from that now but it's not because i don't think it's a good strategy i think it is i just you know i have other things going on but i, I think that's interesting that you went about it that way yeah I, I, it it also needs to be something that you like doing meaning that i love writing I love writing on the spot and having to be really quick because as you know, if you want the top comment, you have to be really quick. Right. And on top of that, most of what I did was just usually sarcasm or jokes, which always makes it better because I get mm -hmm. people to have a, like a quick laugh. And out of that, I still get subscribers. Right, right. Now, I know Jeff at this point, uh, Jeffrey Verdi Schofield, he's pretty much full-time fitness, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I think so is Alpha Destiny. I mean, most of the people we know are... Is that how it is for you? Or do you still have like a full-time job elsewhere and then you do this on the side? 
YouTube for me is just a hobby, just something that I do minimally on a weekly basis, meaning that my job takes me most of my time, then it's my training, then it's my family, and whatever hours I can scrub by for YouTube, I use. Okay. Yeah, and that's, I think, even more shows the success you've had, because for a lot of people, like I saw, uh, I imagine Jeff will watch this, and I think one thing I disagreed with him on is I saw a comment where he said, it's really not that hard you know, to succeed in the fitness industry. And I think that's really not true. I mean, from a percentage standpoint, mm -hmm. 99% of channels will never be seen, will never be watched. Like this really is an area where you have to do, like, I don't know what you do for your job, but like with my profession, even if you're 50th percentile, you're still doing pretty well in life, right? But I mean, fitness, you got to be top one percentile to actually make this like your career and, and make a living off of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Jeff might have a little bit of a survivor bias going on mm -hmm. because it's true that once you quote-unquote make it and you're out of the swamp, you scarcely turn around to look at all of the small channels that never make it. I still do it because these guys are in my comments and they're part of the community. So I talk with them. I look at their channels. They have 100 subscribers. In a year, they'll have 180. They most likely won't go anywhere. Why? Because there's only a very finite amount of people who make it. And it's not necessarily because they're the best channels or have the most talent. Sometimes it's just down to luck. Well, one of your videos got recommended. It created a momentum and you built a channel off of that. It's important to remember that for us because we have this platform and this audience, yes, because of our work, but also because at some point we got lucky. There was a spark at some point and we just took it from there. And as you said, for anyone who wants to make it big or make a living in the fitness sphere, you have to understand that it would be so much easier to pick a trade and get really good at that and make 10 times as much money at your trade. Fitness is cutthroat and fitness is a place where there's scarcely any money left and people fight for it. It's definitely something like I, people have asked me, you know, would you ever want to make it your full time? And even if I actually could make the same amount of money, I just, I wouldn't have the desire for it to be my entire life. Um, but I also do not have the hubris to think that I could do that. You know, that would be very tough to do. Um, but you're right. The luck aspect. I mean, there, there are people like, uh, like when I look at like Greg Doucette, the, his channel growth is not surprising to me. I know some people say, how do people follow this guy? And it's like, yeah maybe you could make memes about him, but the fact that what he is doing, you have somebody with, you know, a physique and powerlifting background to back it up, who had all these call out videos and Natty or not and topics of the day and all these things and, and an excessive amount of volume of videos, that's not surprising, but every once in a while, I'll see a channel where there's this, you know, I won't say his name, but there's a calisthenics channel that the guy's just like a nice guy, but he's soft-spoken. His videos are not engaging. And somehow the algorithm picked this guy up and he has like a couple million subscribers and his videos are on par with others I've seen where the person has a hundred subscribers. And sometimes it really is just this random luck, I guess. Yeah. It's always important to take into account fate, right? Because I'm the type of person that will always tell you that I'm responsible for everything. And I like to believe that, but the algorithm is, is set up as someone who works with algorithms, I can tell you that. It's set up in a way that's fairly random, meaning that you will have videos sometimes that get picked up that if you look at the hard math, it makes no sense. The video didn't get much views, it didn't get much watch time, didn't get much click-through rate, and yet it blew up. Why? Who knows? The algorithm decided that this video has a chance, but it's funny because it's, in a sense, it's a self-defining prophecy. The algorithm picks up a video, so it gets big. So people say, oh, it must be because the algorithm liked it, so the person did something right. But at the end of the day, no, it's just that whatever video the algorithm picks, it will grow. I remember I have a video on my channel where I eat steak. Like, it's a 20-second video where I film a poorly cooked steak, and I say, this is me eating steak. The video has 5,000 views, and it was back in the days where my videos got 50 views. Why did this video get picked up? Who knows, but it got picked up. And for anyone who has the luck, who gets picked up, you are now in a very positive momentum and you can build a channel off of that. I know people who built a 100K subs channel off of one video that did well. Yeah, yeah I have an old uh, video from a former channel, like just like my personal channel. And it's like my very Italian grandmother reacting to like a fake tattoo. This thing's got more views than like any, anything on my actual fitness channel. It's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so you ran into recent issues right about a month ago. Um, that's actually, I think when more people even mentioned, you got to get this guy on, 
you basically your everything you worked for with the fitness stuff was deleted, right? So there you have a long video on it. Uh, we can link that below, but maybe give the uh, too long didn't read version of it. Yeah. So um, what I first off, I'm I'm the type of guy that if I do something that I think is legitimate and I follow the rules and I get blocked, it doesn't make me want to back down. I just want to do it again because in my opinion I'm being censored and I, I cannot stand censorship which is paradoxical on YouTube because censorship is everywhere but what I did is I made a video about uh, pornography I'm personally uh, staunchly opposed to pornography because I believe that it's it's toxic and poisonous for both genders uh, and what triggered the video is that I came across uh, a cartoon that I used to watch as a kid that was extremely sexualized and I, back in the days, would watch it on YouTube. And so when I came across it again, I thought, man, this is not normal. Kids still have access to this thing. It's it's not appropriate. So what I did is I just downloaded the video off of YouTube. I re-uploaded it with my voice over it, explaining to people, explaining to young men why they had to be very careful with sexualized media, what it did to their brains, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that it was going to lead to resentment towards women. And that was perfectly, again, according to the rules. That video got age-restricted, which makes no sense because the show is on YouTube with no age restriction. So I didn't like that, and I, I doubled down. I reposted the video with a slight falter to actually mess with the algorithm and our bots, and this video didn't get restricted. So I was like, okay, fine. And then I think it was 20 hours later, I was, I was happily typing away on my computer, writing a script, and a, a, a window popped up telling me, your channel has been permanently deleted. Uh, you have been posting pornography. We have decided that you do, not have, you do not have a place on YouTube. We have also deleted your Google account. So you cannot uh, hope to actually reinstate your YouTube. It, it's over. And this was a message written by a human where I was told straight up, don't even try. It's, it's done. You have lost your channel. We don't want you on this platform anymore. So, of course, when that happens to you and it's thousands of hours of work that just go down the drain, it's quite the shocking occurrence. After that, I woke up uh, a little bit distraught, to be honest with you, with, again, the loss of contact with my community because I couldn't even talk to people. They banned my Google account, which meant I couldn't create a new one. So I couldn't even create a YouTube account to talk to people on YouTube. But thankfully, Geoff, who is always on the ball, immediately picked it up. And he immediately made an Instagram post. He tweeted at YouTube and he got the ball rolling and he got people's attention. So then when I made an Instagram post, it got a ton of traction and people rallied. And as you said, me, Geoff, Alpha Destiny, we, we might not have the biggest communities, but the quality of the members and their implication and their loyalty is unmatched, meaning that there were waves of people tuning at YouTube, thousands of people who sent faxes to YouTube telling them, hey, why are you doing this? this is not normal. And this got their attention, which... As someone with 40k subs, shouldn't be possible because I have a very small channel. Usually, channels like me, YouTube just ignore altogether all because they get to. This time, people like Jeff Nippard, people like Alpha Destiny again, gave me their support. They told me, hey, what happened to you is not normal. We're going to help you. So they helped me get visibility on Twitter. I got in contact with YouTube, who, of course, once they were facing the fact that I did nothing wrong, had to reinstate the channel now. I say had as if it was an obligation. The only reason it happened, and I told my subs that is because people made noise. YouTube was faced now with a situation where they couldn't ignore me anymore because too many people were making noise around the entire issue. And so in 24 hours, the channel was reinstated. Yeah, that's wild. But yeah, I, I did see your whole breakdown of it. And I mean, I can't even imagine like, Especially if it's something, you know, like my channel is not this huge channel, but it, even for me, it would really be heartbreaking after, you know, making so many connections. And like you said, hundreds, if not thousands of hours, I, I mean, that would be very upsetting to have lost all of that. And, and so even more so for you. And I've seen that we see this on Instagram a lot more so than YouTube. Thankfully, I mean, your situation, as you mentioned, was pretty rare. You do see channels get deleted, but usually there are strikes. They can get it back most of the time. Even somebody as inflammatory as Beacon Gains has still has a platform. Uh, but on Instagram, we do see some people who were just completely deleted forever. And man, if, if this is your career, I mean, that's that is like shockingly uh, just abrasive, you know, to somebody's life. Yeah, and, and unfair. I know of people 
like to navigate around the idea of free speech saying that, oh, they're private companies, so they do what they want. Well, technically, that's correct. But even private companies have guidelines, meaning that technically, if you respect their guidelines you're within the realm of what they consider free speech, so you should be protected. But the issue is that for Instagram, for example, most of the time you get deleted with no reason and you cannot appeal it. It's exactly what happened to me where I didn't even get striked. My channel never got a strike. It just got deleted out of the blue. And that's that's a big issue. It's something that, of course, I'm sure is going to be of a great concern to a lot of YouTubers because this means that there is a system that is supposed to protect you from unlawful termination, but YouTube gets to just ignore it if they so choose. It's really just kind of crazy. Uh, so I also want to get into some people. I and mean, obviously, you're all about natural hypertrophy, right? And, and you know, all about muscle gains and, and not so much anything with like powerlifting. So for people who, again, don't know, can we get just like general stats, like height, weight, um, maybe some of your best lifts? Okay, sure. Um, so height, I'm six feet. Weight, I'm 210. I've been to 10 for a very long time because I've been recomping for a very long time. I used to be quite fat at 210 and now I'm much leaner at 210 and I want to continue on that path. Base, best lifts, really nothing crazy. At mad body weight now, my best lifts are 250 bench. I can pull five plates on the deadlift. I can squat four plates. Um, some of the most, uh, I guess, unorthodox lift I do is front squats. I walk with three plates on the front squats. I curl a plate and a few change, like small plates here and there on the curl bar. I can cheat curl 100 pounds. And a lot of people don't think that's legitimate, but I always find it cool. Um, yeah, my lifts are, I would say, mediocre to really weak. Uh, for example, my overhead press, I press one plate, only 135. And I know a lot of people, when they see that, they think, okay, you're 210, you have relatively big shoulders. How is that possible? Well, I've always been weak at the press. And it's also not something that I care about much. So I do it once a week, if that. So that's that's most of my lifts. Back when I was much fatter, I had better lifts. So back then I could I could press three plates. But I quickly found out when I lost the fat that that wasn't due to muscles. It was due to better leverages. When you say like 250 bench, is that your max or that's what you work with? It's what I work with. Okay. So, okay. That, that's a big difference. And yeah, because I think, um, yeah, if you told me you were 210 and your max was 250, that would be kind of shocking uh but yeah if you're doing it what like a set of like eight to ten for these lifts roughly that's that's even a little bit high i usually do four to six or six okay yeah yeah i mean it's kind of like with jeffrey his uh his strength compared to his size is relatively low now both of you guys are big guys so it's not like you're actually weak but one might expect more given your size for sure yeah, pound for pound, if we look at like weight classes in powerlifting, we are weak because mm -hmm. those lifts won't, it's not even that you won't place, it's that you'd be lucky to score last. Right, right. If they yeah. even give you that last place because <laughs> it's, I think it's something that people need to accept, right? If you train for size, strength is going to be important for progression in terms of muscle growth, mm -hmm. but in terms of absolute numbers and being able to call yourself strong, yeah, we're stronger than the average population, but that's very easy. If we right. compare ourselves to people who actually train for strength, we're really weak. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's always been an interesting thing. And I've always been kind of the opposite. I'm not, not on everything, but I probably stronger than I look like, you know, even when I was in the one seventies, I was deadlifting 500 plus, um, bench, probably not like dramatically different than you. I mean, my best was 225 for, I think it was 16 or 17. And I was probably about 190 when I did it. So like relatively pretty strong, but certainly, you know, still wouldn't like uh, win powerlifting competitions or anything like that. Like not like really legit ones. Um, so you obviously, I was just curious. I've heard some people talk about your stance on, uh, using gear as either unethical, obviously you're against it generally, is it more of an ethical issue for you? Is it because of the health risks? Like, what is your general stance there? So to me, whatever, whether you discuss ethics or morality, it all stems from something practical. Meaning that every time I have a very hard stance on something, if I present it as a principle, it's because at some point I decided that logically it's not good for life. And for me, health is number one, meaning that, I don't see the point in following a practice like bodybuilding, for example, if it's going to sabotage your health, because it should be the reason why you do it in the first place, to be able to actually have muscle mass in your old age, to be able to be nimble and mobile, and also to be happy in your body. I started because of that. I didn't want to be stronger or bigger. I wanted to be happy. 
And building a bigger body was ma what made me happy. I couldn't see myself rely on a substance that is going to potentially toxically impact me in the future to get that happiness because it's now it's the snake that bites its own tail because now my happiness is going to rely entirely on drug. So that's the conclusion I came to and that I wanted to share with people because I know that it took me a long time to get there. Many people know that drugs are bad, but they don't really know why. They'll be told, oh, it's dangerous. But the issue with PEDs is that it's not dangerous at first. At first, the only thing you're going to see is you're going to see the massive benefits of size, of improved mood, etc. The negatives come afterwards. They come when you're already hooked on the positives. So it's already too late. It's at the point where you're going to be able to put your hand in the sand and pretend that you don't see them. Like many PED users, who are all dealing with massive side effects, but ignore them because they love the benefits too much. To me, that's that's the point. Natural bodybuilding and natural training in general needs to focus on that. It needs to focus on the ability of telling people, hey, even though you've been told that PDUs is an alternative, I can show you for a fact logically that it's not, and that if you stay natural, you're going to be so much better. And that's something that I do, Jove does, Alpha Destiny does, Bold Omniman does. Anyone in this natural lifting community, right? We tried to show another path. We tried to offer another chance for people to see that, yes, you can stay natural, you can be big, and all of that is going to align at the end of the day, health, morality, ethicality, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's more of a, like I generally tell people, I, I think you should not use gear for a lot of the reasons that you said. Um, I think a lot of times it's an emotional decision I can understand why, you know, a, a movie actor for a certain role or, you know, somebody who's trying to be a professional, a certain sport, um, certainly like bodybuilding, the sport of bodybuilding, then I could understand it. Um, and, you know, if, if you just decide that the health consequences aren't significant enough for you, I just think most people aren't really that informed about it. And so they, they make an emotional decision because, you know, their friends are doing it or they see something on social media. Um, I, I think that the actual number of people who quote unquote should, or, you know, could justify using it is a very, very small proportion of the people who are actually using it. Which is the vast majority of people who do it. Because if you look at numbers, if we could run stats, I would guarantee you that most people who start taking drugs are teenagers or young adults, meaning people who don't take good decisions altogether. But it's incredible to see that these same people who are being restricted from taking, again, any life-altering decisions for the most part are also the ones that are being targeted the most by PD users because they're the demographic that is the most susceptible to falling for that. If you look at the following of big PD users, of those guys who are just massive of the drugs, they prey off of children. It's a reality because a normal adult with a well-built mind will not fall for that. A, an actual lifter will not fall for that type of, of practice, which is why it's also so dangerous and it's, it needs to be prevented at all costs is because if you take a decision that is going to impact your life forever, when you're 17, you didn't even give yourself a chance. As you said, it's purely emotional and it's you're so easily influenceable at that age. Look at the amount of teens that smoke cigarettes. Why do they smoke? Well, because their friends smoke, they want to be cool like their friends. It's as simple as that. But that decision down the line can have massive consequences at a point where they'll be smart enough to realize it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah for sure. How do you feel then about, because some people will say, you know, you have all these natty or not, these quality videos and things, and they'll say, hey, who cares who is on gear? And I don't know if you're ever back on the forums back in the days, but, you know, when I was first getting into it, I was heavily on the forums. And to me, it's not a... I don't necessarily think people should like individually be called out. I mean, maybe, but I, I think it is important to kind of know what's generally possible on gear versus not. And again, obviously genetics are a huge factor and it just because somebody else did it naturally doesn't mean that you can do it naturally, et cetera. But I, and many other people when getting into lifting are influenced by these people who are heavily enhanced and, and genuinely don't even realize it. Like, don't just think that like, that's what the goal is. Um, and, and, you know, like if I think of what my goal was when getting started, it's literally like 30 pounds more muscle than I have now, because I just didn't know, you know, and, and so I don't know, you touched a lot about like the influence. Do you think that's a big issue for younger individuals? And do you think those people should be called out regarding their enhancement? Well, I think that you touched on something interesting is that a lot of the time, those big PD users that have those massive communities, they're not malevolent. 
I think that it's it's miscasting them to think that they're doing that on purpose. I think that most of that is through projection, meaning that they don't even really realize what they're doing. They're trying to justify their way of life and make money out of it. So what they do is they just push their own ideology onto people. But the problem is that their ideology led them to massive drug use. So it has a chance to influence people as well. And this is why it, when the Nelly or Nuts come into play, right? Now, I personally think that Nelly or Nuts, <clears throat> at least in the format that they espouse to their YouTube fitness, are 100% negative, meaning that they don't do what they're supposed to do. You're being told, oh, I'm just, I'm going to tell you guys whether this guy is natural or not, so as to not mess your expectations so that you can have realistic standards. That to me is just, it's a pure fabrication. The people who make Nadia or not don't care about that. They've never cared about helping the community. And the best way to see that is the fact that most people who make Nadia or not are enhanced. So why exactly are they doing that, right? You're on PED, pointing out the finger saying that guy is on PED. How, how does that compute? Well, it computes because Nadia or not get a ton of views. As you stated previously, you can build a channel off of Nadia or not. That's what Greg Busset did. So they'll just do it. It's just the appeal of numbers. It was never to help people. But the problem is that Nadia or not are really fun. It's something you can't take away from that. You're going to be going through some sort of detective work about is that guy that you've been watching for years on drug or not? And maybe the guy who makes the video even has good arguments and good points to bring up. But at the end of the video, what did it do for you? It either shattered your trust in someone or it made you think that everyone is on drugs. And this leads back to what you said about the fact that some people now say, hey, who cares? Who are these people? These people are the ones that were brought up by Nadia or not. They've seen it too many times and it fried their brains. Now they think, well, this guy was apparently Nadi, but he's not. And this guy could be Nadi, we don't know. So at the end of the day, why even bother? Why even ask ourselves the question? Well, we ask ourselves the question because people who are not natural, the fake Nadis, give again unrealistic standards, they push terrible training methods, and for the most part, they do it for money's sake. That is what should have been focused on. But as I said, that's not what people who make Nadi or not focus on. So, and I, I agree with that as far as the people who tend to make them. It's funny, I, I don't know if I've ever thought about how most of them are enhanced, but you're right, like almost all of those channels are people who are enhanced. But do you think that it's helpful to get information out there? Meaning, do you think it's relevant for Gen Pop to know if somebody is enhanced or not? Because I maybe people aren't trying to be deceptive about it, but you know, I, I can think of some pretty clear examples where they are pushing products knowing that they are enhanced, but talking about how you're going to get, I mean, again, T Nation is, is like the constant example of this, right? Like Christian Thibodeau and guys like that who were on there and clearly pushing products talking about how amazing the the progress is going to be while knowingly being enhanced but not acknowledging that Th that should be what nadia not to accomplish it should show people that yes all of that supplement industry nonsense has been going on has been upheld by pd users that without p users you would never buy these products because you would never think oh i can look like that guy so it's allowing people to know what's possible naturally. My issue with that is always the same, is that if you want to take the standard down to a normal level, chances are you won't stop at the normal level. You'll go lower. And this is when you have people who tell you, oh, a three-plate bench is impossible naturally, or a six-pack is not possible if you're big. You have to be very skinny, or you can't be a certain weight. I know people who tell me that you cannot be six feet and 210 that you would need to be really fat. Why? Because their standards are way low. But the problem is that because their standards are so low, when they themselves try to attain anything, they'll stay there. And now anyone who's bigger than them is going to be considered to be on steroids because of all of the nerdy or nuts. And that, this is when you fall into the trap of the natural pride of people who will tell you, well, at least I'm natural. Well, yeah, you're natural, but you're also small. There is no pride in that. Everyone is born natural. You have to make something out of the body you were given. So that's my issue. And as for the product pushing, I get what you're saying. It's correct. But keep in mind also that all of these guys who make Nadia or not also push products. It, the entire industry pushes products. So if one scam artist points out the finger at another scam artist, 
why am I supposed to start liking the first one? Because it's a trap that many people fall into where they fall in love with their hero that told them, hey, this guy is not natural, don't trust them. They start to trust them unconditionally and they get scammed altogether. For me, that's the big issue too. If I can make a video, an idea or not, about a guy and I shatter your perception, for me, it means that you are fanboying for that guy, that you are blindfully following whatever they say, and that your critical thinking skills were just in the gutters. That's the issue. That's what needs to be combated. Yeah, yeah, and I don't disagree with any of that. And I, and I think kind of what I touched on before, I mean, the reality is, I do think, obviously, steroids highly skew the perceptions of what's realistic for many people. But, you know, so do so does genetic variability, right? I, I mean, the reality is that that is going to be widely different among different people. And just because, you know, maybe you could be, you know, six feet to 10, maybe somebody else could be six feet to 20 and somebody else is only going to ever be up like 190, which you're not going to know, obviously, until you've been doing this for a very long time and putting everything into it. So, I mean, it's very hard to say this, but if you had to kind of rank your genetics for muscle growth specifically, 50th percentile, 70th percentile, you know, if you had to guess. Well, first off, I want to come back on something you just said, the valuability. I think it's an important point because if you look at the difference in potential, for example, hormonal profile between two natural lifters, someone who's top, top, top production and someone who's very low in terms of potential in genetics, and you compare that with drug users, you'll find out that the variability between two naturals is minuscule. It's almost nothing. It's going to be a few grams here and there. So it doesn't make that much of a difference. And I think it's something important to point out because PD users are on grams and grams of stuff. They take doses that are three times, four times what a natural is going to produce. So they are in their own entire universe. And I think it's dangerous to look at what PD users have done to our standards and then equate that to genetics as if it was the same thing. Because genetics play a role yes but to me it's minimal and this leads me to answer your question i don't consider myself to be someone with good genetics when i see the amount of time i had to put in and the way i evolved where i just gained a few pounds here and there throughout the years from 110 to 210 i personally cannot look at someone else and think yeah you can't do that it's not possible because for me, anyone who trains 13 years is going to have a physique as good, if not better than mine. So it's a situation where I would tell you that I think I have personally below average genetics, but that if you looked at me now, you would think I have very good genetics because I actually worked my ass off. And that's what I call Schrodinger's genetics. It's impossible to decide or to detect your level of genetics before you've put in enough work. And by that time, you'll be big. So technically, you'll have good genetics which means that the vast majority of people willing to put in the work have good genetics. So I'm sure this will lead to a good discussion because that's definitely a point we disagree on. So I'll, I'll touch on both of those points. So as far as the steroids versus genetics, this is something I was talking with Abel Chabayi and uh, Brandon Cruz on like probably a year ago now. We said, okay, so you could basically take as much steroids as you wanted, but there's somehow no health side effects. Like it's just the benefits or, and, and like you have like dead average genetics, or you can have like pristine top of the top level genetics, but be natural. And all of us agreed genetics by a long shot. When you look at guys like a Doug Miller and Elaine Norton who compete closer to 200 pounds, completely shredded. And then you look at a guy like Brad Loomis, who's been training with top people. I mean, top coaches, for 25 years and he competes at similar height at 155 you're talking a 40 pound difference in lean body mass on stage we have many examples now again can you ever know somebody is completely natural no but we have people who have passed test after test after test who are extremely impressive and people who i know and many people know who have used gear who really don't look that good and if you if you do not have the genetics to respond to gear. So we, we can talk about how amazing gear is. Well, Ronnie Coleman, he's probably a hundred pounds bigger than any natural could be, but he had the genetic response to gear. There are many people who go on gear who look like absolute trash, you know, to, to be blunt. Um, and they do not have the response to touch on the hormone variability. Sure. You know, most natural lifters are going to have somewhere between 300 and 900 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone, 
but testosterone is one of many, many factors that relate to one's genetic potential and, and in no way would make up the difference that we see in terms of muscle fibers, in terms of androgen receptor density, in terms of myostatin, uh, mTOR activation. I mean, there's so many things that lead to genetics. So uh, that might just be a point we disagree on, but I think genetic variability is quite huge as it is with many other human variables. So for the first point, I don't know the second person you cited. So you tell me that they're six feet and one fifty. They compete in bodybuilding. Brad Loomis is not six feet. He's five nine. Okay. And he competes at about one fifty five. And then there are other like the top top naturals. Five nine. You could be. I mean, there are guys who are competing at like one ninety. So you're talking about a thirty five pound difference in lean body mass. And we're talking about someone who's natural. Correct. All right. So I would say here that it might also be a personal choice. It might not necessarily be that he can't gain any more weight. He might just want to stay at that level to be shredded to the to the socks. It's possible. Now, it leads to a completely different set of, of interrogations as whether or not a natural should actually want to be shredded. In my opinion, if you follow the standards of pro bodybuilding and you're natural, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you might be leaving a ton of mass on the table. If I wanted to be lean, 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 I might have to be 170. That's 40 pounds of, of mass. Do I want to lose that 40 pound of mass just to be slightly more lean? I think it's a waste in, in a sense because you're just going to be small then. But that's a different discussion. But to go back on the genetics, I do agree with something that you said is that one, you have to look at other factors than just hormonal profile. I use the hormonal profile because when people talk about PDs, it's all they look at because PDUs only does that. It only has an influence on your hormonal profile. So that was for the people who are obsessed with tests and who always say, well, I have poor test production. Okay, but don't correlate that with PDUs. PDUs would like quadruple your test level. So the difference between you and the top natural is not as big as you would think. And then it's the rest, right? We all know the tale of the guy who took drugs and he looks like garbage. Why? Well, because your hormonal profile is only one thing. After that, it has an influence on the way you look, on the, the, the insertion of the muscle, the quality of the fibers, as you said, etc. That cannot change just via PDUs. But I would say that if you take the same individual and you clone them, and you put one on PD and the other on nothing, just natural, the one on PD is of course going to blow up and is of course going to make better results. It's not something that you can argue with. And this leads to the problem with genetics, in my opinion, is that the field of genetics hinges on the idea that you're going to compare yourself with others. But this is already a problem in itself because what is the point? You're training for yourself by yourself. You don't need to compare yourself. So you are you and you have the genetics you were gifted. That's what you have to work with. Even if someone is much better than you, it doesn't matter. Now it's a question of whether or not the PDUs in this individual would make the difference. And as we already said, yes, it would. So I agree that there are people who are going to have better genetics altogether. But if we look again at your example of, do you want pristine genetics and natural, or do you want normal genetics and PDUs as much as you want with no consequences? The issue is that you're looking at two different people. They're not the same guy. And that's my issue. Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's just a theoretical argument. You could never really have that scenario. But when I've seen people who, you know, you know, as far as one could know somebody is natural, I, I mean, it's, it's not even just a muscle growth thing. I mean, levels of strength, the ability at sport, there's, there's such a huge variation. I mean, obviously height, right? I mean, you obviously it's not as modifiable as, as muscle growth, but I, I personally think there's, there's wide, uh, a wide array of differences when it comes to genetics. And, um, like I said, I, I can think of even like a couple of friends who, I know took gear and we had, there's like one guy in our group who was just like a natural athlete. I mean, just like, you know, he was top level baseball player squatted four or five for six at like 20 years old. Some people could just never, ever achieve that. Right. I, I mean, you know, depending on it, if they're like really bottom of the barrel genetics. So, um, but, but to your point, you're never going to know these things unless you try it. One point, I guess I would bring up when you said you're comparing yourself to other people, and why that could matter, I think, and I can tell you this myself, from the first five years, I mean, from day one, I was very dedicated to this. I, I mean, I've literally, I can think of maybe twice in 18 years <laughs> that I've actually skipped the workout, like not a planned, but just like, I'm not going to go today. It just doesn't happen. Um, and when I was in high school, I really didn't have the results that I would have expected, you know, compared to what I was seeing. And there was a 
a large part of that that made me feel like I'm doing something wrong. And, and because of that, I became even more obsessed. I would lose social interactions. I would lose, I just, I would, I was so dead. I didn't have a car. So I'd have to get up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym with my dad. And it actually became a net negative for my life, the more obsessed I got with it. And I think if I had known back then, hey, you're not doing anything wrong. If anything, you can become a little less obsessed and enjoy life. And not, again, not to not try, but you could just kind of back off a little bit and enjoy life. That would have been helpful in the same way that, you know, like people can debate this, but there's a lot of research to show that IQ is very genetic, right? I mean, it's highly heritable. And so to tell somebody, let's say somebody's really trying, but they're just not doing that well in school. And to say, no, this is all based on how hard you study. You're not trying enough. And clearly, if this person's getting an A, but you're just consistently getting B minuses, you're doing something wrong. Maybe that's not the best approach, right? Maybe that blame isn't the best approach on them. And I would say the same thing could be said for sports performance or bodybuilding progression. Yeah, it's in, it's important to, again, put fate or the equation of genetics back into the question. I'm not one who's going to tell you that genetics don't exist. I'm not that naive. I've been in gyms. I've met people who are monsters right off the bat. I have stories on my channel of people who, like, I used to live with a guy, one of my roommates, who didn't watch what he ate. He trained twice a week for 45 minutes. He only trained in summer because he hated the cold, and he had a better physique than I had. Mm -hmm. because he was just a genetic beast but the thing with that guy is that because he trained so scarcely years after years after years i managed to catch up to him and now i have a better physique if that guy trained like i train with my diet he would be just he would be the type of person that you see and think oh yeah that's pdus there's no way around it but he's natural 100 that's genetics you can fight that i used to know a guy who and I, I'm still in contact with him. I'm trying to boost him because I know he can be a world record holder one day. That guy showed up to the gym, benched, like, I think every three days. And within, like, three months, he had a 350 bench. He, he weighed 170, 180. The first time this guy deadlifted, I was deadlifting myself. I was warming up. There was 365 on the bar. First time he deadlifted, he walked up to the bar, did a set of 12 with no difficulty, with 365 on the bar. You cannot teach that. That guy nowadays is squatting 600 pounds. He's in his second or third years of training. That's a prodigy. That's a genius. But the issue is that these are like this much. They are the tiny parts. These are the ones who are going to make it big in the sport regardless of what they do. But I'm not like that. You're not like that. So we have to live with that reality and get the best of what we can get and not obsess, as you said. I'm sure that many young men have very high goals for themselves and that's excellent. But they get upset when they can't get it. I think it's not really a question of standards. It's a question of deadlines. You expected to be at a certain level at 17 and you didn't have it. But maybe nowadays you are at this level. It just required more time. I'm the same way, meaning that I trained for years and years and the results were very small. But the difference is that because for me, I was living in my bubble. I was doing it just by myself. I didn't have anyone to compare myself with. So whatever modification I saw on the scale on my body was something that I would take. I started to experiment what you described, which is a form of body dysmorphia, when I started consuming social media, YouTube, etc. because comparison is the thief of joy. You stop being centered on yourself, you start looking at others constantly, and that can be really painful psychologically. Yeah, and I think we all have our own biases based on, like, we all have our own reason for being in this space, right? And hopefully, for most people, it, you know, it's a benevolent reason. But, uh, you know, for you, you, you've kind of had this journey, and, and I think it's it's good because you're, you're right. I mean, most of us are going to fall in that middle of the bell curve, or at least, you know, close to it, maybe a standard deviation. Um, and I think one of the things I try to get out to people was because of my early experiences is that, you know, you need to develop a love for it. You can't do it just for the progress itself long-term. Um, you need to make it a part of your lifestyle, but also, and, and you know, it's important to know the audience too. I was so obsessed that I think I do talk a lot about like, Hey, don't, become too all encompassed by it. But for most people, you know, if I was at a, if I was given a seminar at planet fitness, that's not what I'd be saying. Right. I'd say, look, you guys need to put a lot more effort into it. So the audience is important and our own personal biases, of course, color it quite a bit. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a very important point to bring up. It's the question of perspective. Uh, If I were to relate that to something like philosophy, for example, if you're interested in stoicism, 
Stoicism hinges on the idea that you have to temper your emotions. And one emotion that is especially tempered is anger. Why? Because the Greeks back in the days were very prompt to anger. They were very fiery people. And like what many people think, they were not sages. They were warriors. They were always described as being a little bit crazy. So the philosophies applied to their people had to insist on that. But nowadays, if you look at Stoicism applied to us in general, I think we don't need that anymore. We need more fire because we're too cold. So this is, again, a question of perspective. When we make videos for people, our bias comes into play. We are going to tell people how to live their life or we're going to give advice according to what worked for us. That's okay. It's our subjectivity. We can't do away with that. And as you pointed out previously, there are people who got really popular on YouTube because of that, because they have a certain subjectivity or sensitivity that people like. They vibe with it. We can't take that away. It's the reason why people like us so much. If we were just robots, objective robots, no one would want to watch us because it would just be boring. So I think that as long as we know it and we engage in open talks like this and we agree on things like, for example, saying, yeah, it's my opinion, it's from where I came from, so you better be able to adapt it to your life, then we're fine. Do you have a, a philosophical background through education or just personal interest? Both. Both, okay. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, but uh, you, you can kind of tell like who who's read what, you know, at least to some degree. So, um, so I, I saw a video you made on uh, deloads, and by the way, I, I love the thumbnails with Dragon Ball Z because I'm not like a huge anime person. I have a friend who keeps trying to get me to watch other anime, and like I'm just a, I'm a diehard Dragon Ball Z fan. Um, I finally gave in and watched Dragon Ball Super. It was oh, a little, no. yeah, yeah. It was, it was hard to get through. I just, I, you know, I had to get the exposure. Um, but yeah, like original Frieza Saga, Cell Saga, all that. Love it. Uh, and in this video, you talked about how you have worked out. I think it was like, I don't know exactly how many days a week, but basically it sounded like you were working out a lot for a long time and you felt like a lot of naturals can do that. So maybe go into a little bit on your training and what you feel has been a big part of your success getting to where you are. All right. So first off, I will give you some uh, anime recommendations because there is things out there much better than Dragon Ball Z. And I'm <laughs> sure that you are going to be rejoiced to discover them at some point. But that's for later. Uh, as for my training, if we're going to start talking about deloads, for example, I never did deloads the way most people do it, which is a week off here and there. Right. That's what's prescribed by a lot of people. I never did that because I've always trained nonstop, meaning that my mode of training was always I want to train as often as possible. So frequency was always important and taking a week off made no sense in my opinion. And I made progress off of that. I never plateaued. I never got injured. I know that some people get sick because their immune system gets shut down. It never happened to me. And as I say in the video, I'm not some mythical creature or beast. I started like everyone else with low work capacity, soreness for a week after a workout. So I was a normal human, but I built up my work capacity by refusing to embrace things such as deload and always keeping the workload very, very high, which led me to a point where now I train six days a week, two to three hours every single day. And my only break of the week is the Sunday. And then I'm right back into it. How is that possible? Well, it's simple. My entire program hinges on the idea that I can't take more breaks than that. So the split I do is an upper-lower, which allows me to, again, not work the same muscles too, too many times in a row. The rotations of lifts in the program make it so that I'm not going to hit the same muscle group very hard within a like 48-hour window. Everything hinges on the idea, again, that minimum rest is going to be optimal because rest is not just doing nothing. If you squat on Monday and you squat again or you do knee flexion on Thursday, even if you trained in the middle, as long as you didn't train your quads, that's rest. You still rested. And I know that many people say, well, what about the CNS? We are not made of like cardboard. Your CNS is not something so weak that is going to be depleted like this. People used to work in the fields for 12 hours. People do manual labor in the sun for eight hours in August where I live their CNS is just fine. They still train afterwards. If you manage your CNS as if it were just a finite resource that is going to just lead to you being fried, 
most of the time it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're constantly going to be tired or overexhausted. It's because you didn't train one of the most important capacities that you have and it's your work capacity. And if you want to be able to accumulate volume and be frequently in the gym, that's something you need to train. Too many people ignore it and they train three times a week for years at a time. And I look at that and think, okay, you never upped your frequency, so you left gains on the table. There's a lot of talk now about not just frequency, but, you know, volume. If you're working out two to three, you said two to three hours, is that right? Yep. For workout? Um, and you're doing that per muscle group, really three times a week, right? Three upper and three lower. So do you know how many work sets you're getting per week per muscle group? It's always going to be contained between 12 and 18, something like this. And even okay. for some of them, it's, I have some muscle groups that are going to be above that. And some that are going to be below that. For example, quads, knee flexions, six to ten max. Sometimes it's just even like four or five. Yeah. So that that's a pretty reasonable amount of volume, in my opinion. Like 12 to 18. Yeah, I don't personally see much benefit going above that. I've had periods as low as like six to ten, and I thought it was it was still fine. Um, and even, I mean, especially when dieting, I don't know if you change yours when when dieting, but I found like to maintain it's it's you know. 10, eight has even been fine. Um, so I'm surprised though, because I would think like for me, I was able to do that with three or four workouts a week, about 90 minutes. So to hear six days a week at two to three hours, I was expecting a, a really high number. Are you resting a really long time between sets? Oh, uh, no, because one, I don't really rest. I do supersets for everything. Hmm. The only moment where I rest is for my strength work. Where this would make more sense for you is if I told you that on a, a usual upper day, I'm going to train chest, I'm going to train triceps, long out of the triceps, shoulders, forearms, abs, upper back. So if you look at all of these muscles and now you apply three to four sets for each muscle and maybe even more for some, mm. now you understand why it might be so long. But I also want to make people know that this also means that I don't go both the wall. I don't go to absolute failure. I don't trash the muscle. I work them, I stimulate it plentifully with the work that I do, but because I know I'm going to train it again, maybe in 48 hours, I can't go too hard. And it's also the reason why I don't accumulate quite as much fatigue as most people would. So it goes down to baseline much faster and I can train it again. And for me, that's the reason why I don't like deloads. I want my fatigue to always be high because I always want that move, movement to be occurring. I never wanted the tank to be empty. So would you say... You know, if you get into the whole RAR thing on average, I mean, would you say that you're doing like straight sets where maybe your first set is a three RAR and by the end it's zero, or are you adjusting the weight per, you know, set so that it's always staying at, let's say one RAR? So I never adjust the weight for my top sets, for my hard sets. I use what is called evolving rep ranges. So what is going to temper down is the amount of reps I did. So for example, if I put 365 on the bar for squats and I do eight reps, the next set is going to be six, and then it's going to be four. So I, I accommodate the muscle like this, where I know that the muscle is tired. I don't want to change the weight. I want to keep the intensity as high as possible. So I'm going, just going to reduce the volume. And it's a method that I find is quite potent if you want to just focus on muscle building. After that, reps in reserve. I love reps in reserve. I never go to what people call failure. Most people, when they say failure, it means technical failure, meaning that their form goes to garbage. They do eight reps of squat. The first six are good. Then seven and eight, it's a good morning. These two reps, I don't want. I cut them off. Two, high injury risk. And even if you look at tonnage and the quality of the volume you get for these, your form is all of, all of, all, all of whack. So you're not getting the type of tonnage that you want. Cutting these make a ton of sense. So for me, for certain lifts, like curls, for example, I never do reps in reserve or for bench, but a lot of the time I will leave myself a one to two rep, just a, a tampon that I can just push away because I know that at the end of the day, it's fatigue that I can make up somewhere else with less risks. So you would say you cut it at technical failure. Is that about right? Like right yeah. before it would fail yeah. or it would have bad form. Like you could get it up, but it's not going to look pretty. Yeah. If, if we look at the reps, here is absolute failure where you like fell, like you fall with the bar on your back because you couldn't get it. That's never do that. To yeah. me, it's you never want to fail lift. Then there's that period here, that zone here where it's technical failure. And then there's that zone here where it's hard. 
It's the slow rep. You grind it. Mm -hmm. I, that I don't take away. I keep that. But the second we get into the technical failure, I cut it. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, I think that that's a good place for most people realistically to stop. Um, so what do you do when you're with six days a week, like something that I've found a little annoying recently, because most of my training has been four days per week, like on average throughout my lifting career. And I've done as much as double sessions. I mean, I've tried everything after so much time, but that's kind of where I gravitate is for with, with six days a week. I don't know how social you are, or if you go on vacations or anything, do you have to modify it if you're away for a weekend or do you just find a gym wherever you are? How does that affect your lifestyle? All right. I'm sure you've all, we've all heard the trifecta of social life, work life, and gym. Pick two. Yeah, right. Right? You've heard that. Well, yeah. I, I picked two. I do gym and I do work. I don't have a social life. I'm okay. going to be straight up honest. I know a lot of people would want to dance around the issue because it's seen as, in a sense, a little bit mediocre or pathetic in a sense, but I don't see my friends. Right. I think uh, last time I saw a friend was a week ago and it had been like two years since I saw that guy in particular. Mm. I'm a bit of an outlier in that, meaning that I'm not very social at all. Mm. As long as I can see my partner and my cat, that's all I need for social interactions. I know that many people are not like that. So it's not going to be as easy to be as extreme as I am. But for me, it's 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 what makes it so easy as well to just focus on the gym is because I don't have any other thing to worry about at all. Interesting. And then what was your second question? I forgot. Well, it was all kind of uh, tying into the same thing, just if it affects your social life or if you go away or like if you travel. Oh, and for the travel, travel thing, yeah. So I used to be the type that I would refuse to travel and take holidays because I didn't want to miss out on gym time. And the issue is that this is a very inflexible mindset. And it's nice to be rigid and to have principles and to, to have a schedule. But if it's if it's absolute to the point that you yourself cannot even modify it if you want, then it becomes a problem. And I've started to change with the years. Well, now I can take a week off and think, okay, I'll just find the gym on the spot and go once or twice just to maintain gains. Or last time I went to Miami, I grabbed a pair of rings. There was a tree where I lived. I just put the rings on the tree and I did just upper body workouts. Then I found the gym and I did squats and deadlifts like once a week. And that was it. I didn't, it's not like you're going to shrink, right? I think it's important for people to realize that muscle build naturally doesn't go away. It doesn't just dissipate. You cannot train for two, three weeks with minimal efforts, and it's still going to be there when you come back. That's a great point to bring up regarding the deload. Because as I watched your video, one thing I thought to myself was, you know, I don't think, you know, especially like consistent implemented deloads are that helpful. However, I also don't think the occasional time off is really going to hurt anything. And I'm glad to see that you're on the same page there. Oh, no, absolutely. I think it's a point I made in the video. I want people to know that. If, you, if you're going to not do deload, don't do it because you think, oh, if I stop moving for a second, my muscles are going to atrophy. It's not true. It's the same for diet. If you miss a meal here and there, it's not going to make you just disappear into thin air. The issue, however, is that you're breaking a momentum and it's small incremental gains you're not making. So it's where the problem is. If you skip a week every six weeks, yeah, you won't lose much strength or size at all, but you lose progress and you lose accumulation in long term in terms of tonnage not strength, in terms of weights that you're going to lift that is going to stimulate the muscle. And if you actually tally all of that at the end of the year, like you would tally, for example, all of the time you missed a meal, it might be just 300 calories, but at the end of the year, it's 30K calories. And now it's a difference. Yeah, I wonder if there is like, it's so that last analogy just kind of reminds me of these, you know, ridiculous nutrition advices where they'll say like, if you were to just drop one soda and that's 120 calories, that's this many thousand calories over a year and you would lose this much fat. And it's like, we all know that's BS because your body's going to adapt within, you know, once you've lost the first two pounds or whatever it is, your body's going to adapt. Similarly, I, I don't know if I would say if somebody were to say, hey, you know, once every quarter or once every three months, they take a week off. But over 10 years, that's like 40 weeks off. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for like some catch-up growth. Like we all know people who have had an injury. They had to take a long time off. They clearly lost something, but then they're back to a peak or beyond once they've gotten back to it. Like I don't, and I mean, there are even studies showing there was a study that was on, it was like either consistent training the whole time, or actually it was six weeks on two weeks off and over, I don't forget how long the study was run, but there was no difference. Now, who were the study participants is a big factor. There's obviously a lot of factors, but I do think that 
you're, you're probably going to catch up as long as you're not ridiculous with the, the time off. To go back on the injury thing you just brought up, it's something that I have knowledge of because it happened to me in the past. I used to get injured all the time and I always came back from it and I always made good gains afterwards. But what you have to look at is who would have made the better gains? The version of me that got injured or the version of me that never got injured? Just because the version that got injured managed to make gains afterwards doesn't mean that it's just as much as the guy who actually paid attention and didn't get injured would get. So at the end of the day, I think it's it's a little bit hard to argue, even though your study seems to show that it's the case, that someone who does less work is going to do better than someone who does more work. That being said, work is just fatigue accumulation. After that, what the fatigue becomes, muscle growth, strength, whatever you want to seek, is something to keep in mind because it might very well be that the six-week-on, two-week-off crew has a program that is intelligently crafted around that and the crew that just trains nonstop has a program that is not intelligently crafted. And in this case, smart work is going to be consistency, of course. But if you apply smart work and, and again, good programming to the consistency, this is when it starts making sense. It's why I told people with my deload video as well that it works for me because my entire program hinges on the idea that I'm not going to take a deload. I plan my program not... not uh, it's, it's a formula that I used. I want to make sure I don't get it wrong. I know that my recovery is going to be as such, so I plan like this. I don't plan by letting the recovery dictate it, it's the other way around. I want to train as much as possible so as to maximize recovery. I don't want to obsess over recovery because that tends to lead to sub-maximal uh, practices when it comes to training. Man, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. We're going a little over an hour here. Uh, thank you for the discussion. I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, we'd definitely love to get you back on in the future. And where can people find more of your stuff? So for me, it's YouTube only. I really don't have any other social media. I have Instagram where I post the odd selfie here and there. But if you want to listen to what I think about bodybuilding, my training principles, natural lifting, philosophy, psychology, whatever, you can find me at Natural Hypertrophy. To your channel as well as that video about your, uh, your time away from YouTube and all that that happened there. Thanks again, man. Thank you so much.